Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Famous trials such as those of Amanda Knox, Oscar Pistorius, Rose West and Making a Murderer's Brendan Dassey captivate audiences and engage us all in a search for the truth. What we often fail to consider is that this truth is not found but made through sociological and psychological processes that produce guilt and innocence. In a new textbook called Case Studies of Famous Trials and the Construction of Guilt and Innocence, Caroline Gordon from Wrexham Glendor University and Chris Birkbeck from the University of Salford examine 11 high-profile criminal cases to reveal evidence about how guilt and innocence are constructed in the courtroom, the media, and in wider society. What does this mean for our understanding of truth, guilt, and innocence, and what are the implications of this? Hi, Caroline and Chris. Hello. Hi. It's a fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it, and thank you for speaking to me today about it. So Thank to you start, for having us. Oh, absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting aspects of the book for me was this understanding that guilt and innocence, they're not facts, but they're social constructs. And in the introduction, you say that the truth is not what is, but what is agreed on. Can you tell us more about this process of constructing the truth? One of the cases that I talked about with my students this morning was the one about Amanda Knox. So that's probably a good one to start with. So back in 2009, Amanda Knox was convicted of the murder of Meredith Kircher, and she was convicted alongside her co-defendant, Raffaele Salicito. And I distinctly remember back at that time, a friend saying to me, well, there must have been really strong evidence then to convict them. You know, it's that general common sense assumption that the truth is what is, um, that for a conviction or acquittal of a defendant, um, there has to be either strong evidence pointing very clearly towards somebody's guilt um, or simply not enough to secure an acquittal. So it's almost like a gathering and a review of the evidence is is like peeling an onion until you get to the centre and right there in the middle is the truth for everyone to see. That's how we think of the truth, that it's found. But these assumptions are actually really brought into question when once once in a while, um, the outcome of a criminal trial, so that's the defendant's conviction or acquittal, is fraught with disputes about whether that outcome was correct or not. So for example, if we go back to the conviction of Amanda Knox, there were plenty of advocates um, among the public who were outraged at her and Celicito's conviction because of what appeared appeared to be a distinct lack of physical evidence against them. Mm. So because of that, that gives people like Chris and I an opportunity to look at what else might have been at play. So what other processes and strategies there might have been to contribute towards Amanda and Celicito's guilty verdict. So in our book, we looked at how Amanda's guilt was constructed in the media um, and how she was portrayed as a sex-obsessed she-devil. Yeah. And that was <clears throat> something that that portrayal of her was really greatly supported by the lead investigator and the prosecution at the time. 
So that notion of her, of the sex-obsessed she-devil, was something that was repeated and repeated throughout the investigation and the trial, um, because that story of a seemingly ordinary and beautiful woman could be capable of such sexual deviancy and heinousness is basically it's just so appealing to the readers of newspapers it, it sells newspapers and so we really need to question how that damaging image of her made its way into the courtroom um, which it did and importantly how um, it might have influenced the original guilty verdict mm. so this particular case highlights the essence of our arguments of con in constructing guilt and innocence because as you know, the Italian legal system meant that the case of Amanda and Raffaele was actually heard four times. Yeah. And as a result, they were subsequently acquitted, then they were reconvicted, and then they were acquitted for a final time. And many in the UK and the US were critical of those Italian practices. Um, but when we look closely at their processes, so for example, the time that was taken to hear and decide on the case, the lengthy um, and public decision-making and the great international scrutiny of their judgments, um, we might also conclude that the case can be made for either their guilt or, the, or their innocence. So I think the research that's taken place in the disciplines of criminology, sociology, psychology and law really enables us to look at criminal trial outcomes in a different way, which is exactly what we've done. And from mm. a different perspective, so we can really start to ask the question, well, what explains these outcomes? So rather than asking um, whether the defendant was guilty or innocent, we come from the perspective of not trying to make that judgment, but actually instead asking why they were convicted or acquitted. And that's exactly what we do with each case. Another example from the O.J. Simpson case, which we look at in chapter six, when you look at that, the police collected what they said was uh, evidence of blood samples from Simpson and the victims in the different at the crime site and at, um, for, for Simpson at the crime site and uh, for the victims at Simpson's home. And they were able to use DNA analysis to show that it was the blood of um, Simpson at the crime scene and walking away from the crime scene. And typically you would think that DNA evidence is what the Americans in basketball terms call a slam dunk mm. piece of evidence. And yet one of the striking things about Simpson's defense was that they picked that apart. So here's the difference between the truth is what's agreed on. In many criminal cases, the DNA evidence is taken as the truth. That's what it shows. This is what the experts say. But in the Simpson case, they disagreed about that and very strongly. And they were quite successful in um, suggesting that the DNA evidence had actually been planted yeah. um, and by uh, racist uh, police officers and, uh, and also sloppily handled by the forensic science mm -hmm. examiners. So uh, what we often, that, that, that reveals that when people decide to disagree, then the truth has to be established in some way or other. But there are most things in most criminal trials that are agreed on. There's just not the time to disagree about everything. Yeah. So, I mean, your work is kind of is highlighting the importance of the process to get of getting to a verdict rather than 
whether or not there is this absolute truth. But I did have mm -hmm. one other question about that. Um, and it's people are really intrigued by these high profile criminal cases like the ones in the book. But in the book, you argue that this isn't because of a morbid fascination with violent crime, but actually because we have quite a deep seated anxiety about the status of truth. Can you explain this? Because I think it explains why perhaps we don't look at the process so much and we just accept the verdict. Yeah, um, I think some there are a few people who do follow these high profile cases involving serious violence because they have a morbid fascination with the details of the crimes themselves. But I think most people actually shy away from that. They don't want to know about those details. They're too gory for them or too mm. upsetting. And most people follow the cases because of these, the, the key decision about guilt or innocence. And um, Carol and I have the idea that the public and the media uh, tend to operate with a combination of perspectives. On the one hand, they're quite cynical about what happens in court, particularly in relation to lawyers, sometimes in relation to defendants and about how they try to manipulate the case to get a, a particular outcome. And so they think that what they think of as the truth, it may be obscured in a trial. And along with that, um, is a belief in the truth itself. For them, it's like peeling away layers of an onion and there is the truth finally. Revealed, and, yeah. Yes, revealed. And so um, they, the public and the media have to try and balance those two things and it, it can be quite difficult to do. Uh, but you, you, you see it typically or hear it typically when somebody says a defendant got away with it, by which they mean the defendant must really be guilty but was acquitted um whereas we don't talk about getting away with it we simply uh, look at the fact that the defendant was acquitted and ask why this links in I'll, I'll i'll try and be brief here to our use of moral categories of good and bad which are vital to our experience and our sense of who we are and what the world is and um i think the uh, uh, allied to the in attempt to find a, a fundamental truth is the idea that people want to assign labels mm -hmm. of good or bad to people in a very simplistic way. Yeah. Now, if the truth isn't permanent, if it's not found, but it's made or constructed, and if uh, the truth can change from one moment to the next, and if that's the so the moral status of the accused is and the grounds for labeling someone as good or bad becomes much more problematic because they might be bad today, but they might be good tomorrow, mm -hmm. uh, given the decisions that can come from cases. And so that means that our basis for making moral judgments, we have to rethink it. It becomes more precarious. So um, I think without realizing it, many people get very nervous about those kinds of um, uh, situation. Carol, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think what you're saying really resonates um, in terms of the teaching context. I've been teaching Constructing Guilt and Innocence since 2014. And you are absolutely right that students come in and they want to 
to use those moral categories of good and bad and it's really trying to get them to move beyond that to really like Chris says that that moral judgment really needs to be rethought and they've got to go back to the question of why rather than trying to arrive at the truth you know that center of the onion um, and I would say you're absolutely right in saying that it's it's really not so much about people's morbid fascination. Whenever I teach the module, actually students, you know, don't, don't ask me questions really about the morbid details. It's mm. exactly as Chris says, that they want to know much more about these moral categories and to arrive at some kind of certainty because of that deep seated anxiety. And like I say, it's trying to move them beyond that. Mm. I suppose that's why Amanda Knox is such an interesting case, because mm. like you said, the verdict changed. And that's quite difficult for people to deal with, isn't it? Um, especially it is. if you're not used to the Italian process. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so thinking more, going a bit more into the detail of the content of the book now, as we've already shown you use these cases with which we'll all be very familiar to show the different processes that happen when guilt and innocence are constructed in trials. So through these cases, you examine themes of evidence and narratives, credibility, rhetoric, social status, vulnerability and false confessions, diminished responsibility and the media and social judgments. So it's really hard to do the depth of your analysis justice in one podcast episode. But in addition to the ones you've already pulled out, could you each pick one or two examples to illustrate kind of what the book does? Yeah, um, I would pick credibility. And um, the case that we use to look at the research on credibility or somebody's believability is the case of Rose West, who was convicted of 10 murders back in 1995. So um, I'll make an assumption here that probably most of the audience will all have heard of Rose West. Yeah. Um, even as the case has aged, actually, people still are familiar with her name. But again, going back to the teaching context, whenever I talk to my students about this case, um, one of the things I do is begin with showing them a photograph of her. And there are no words around that photograph, just simply the photograph. And I'll ask them you know, what, what words would you use to describe the person in this picture? And what do you associate her with? And inevitably, straight away, they will say things like Fred West's wife, um, serial killer, sadomasochist, evil, perverted, monster. You know, there's never anything nice. It's, you know, lots of negative connotations for obvious reasons. Um, and her guilt of the crimes for which she was convicted, uh, basically, they're not disputed. So what I mean by that is that her, her guilt is a given in the media. It's not questioned at all that she was guilty of those 10 murders. Um, and then I follow it up with by asking my students the question, would you be interested to know that although several of the bodies were actually found in the house where Rose lived, but bear in mind her husband Fred took full responsibility for them and said, you know, Rose had nothing to do with it, that despite that there were, actually wasn't any direct evidence against Rose. 
And the interesting thing about that is that following Fred's suicide, it looked almost certain that the case against Rose would be dropped because of the lack of evidence. But such was the public interest in the case that she was taken to trial and a case was made against her for 10 of the murders. And that's quite complicated to get into in terms of how the prosecution did that. But mm. there, there were strategies. Um, and it was really challenging for them because, of course, they needed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Rose, along with her accomplice Fred, um, had willingly participated in um, in the murders. Seven of them were proved to be sexually motivated murders because of the way that the, the remains were found with tapes and ligatures. Um, and that she had murdered three others, which included her daughter, stepdaughter, and one of the lodgers, where when the remains found, there wasn't evidence for a sexual motive. So they had to show that there was a different motivation for those other three murders. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's it was difficult in terms of the seven murders where there was a sexual motivation because it could only be proved that Rose had actually come into contact with one of the women. Um, so as we said before, Chris and I don't make a judgment about whether Rose was guilty or innocent, but in light of the prosecution's case there, it's interesting to go back to the question of why she was convicted um, when it looked very clear in the build-up or after Fred's suicide that the case would be dropped. So we turn to the sociological research on credibility or believability. Right. So what that means is, is if you're perceived to be a credible person, it basically means that you, um, have, you're received positively by another person. It means that what you say to another person is likely to be accepted as true, as valid, you're believable. Mm. So credibility in itself is uh, of a person is made up of lots of different things. So it can be like your physical appearance. You know, are you well presented, well dressed? It can be your social status. Um, it can be how competent you appear, how you speak, even your accent. Um, and it can also be just how trustworthy you come across to somebody. Mm. So if, for example, a defendant in the dock appears to be a bit odd or have deviant features, then jurors, as the research shows, might conclude that there is something strange and abnormal about them and therefore more likely to be guilty. So the same goes for a person's social status and competence. The less you appear to have those character traits, the less credible and believable you're likely to be. It's not fair, but this is, you know, how it is. So what we've done is we look at examples of how she was perceived by journalists who were observing the trial and what they said about her. And they have described her, I think it was about three journalists who we drew from. Um, those journalists described her as things like a plump, bespectacled woman. Um, so a man, among many odd things, a bumpkin. Right. Um, they described the clothes that she was wearing that made her look like a female Gestapo officer. Um, she was likened to um, a prison guard at a Nazi concentration camp. 
um, and said, you know, she, she looks like somebody like that who might use her victims for pleasure. And she was then also described as, in terms of a physical appearance, that she looked very strange in the upper part of her face, whatever that means. Wow. Um, there was a presence of a ghostly shadow or a darkness. So because of her perceived lack of credibility, mm. um, she wasn't believed. And we always say, you know, that there are certainly other perspectives that might help to explain Rose's conviction. It's not just credibility alone. We could, for instance, draw on pre-trial publicity and prejudice the way that Rose was reported on in, in newspapers and in the media. But um, certainly given the research on credibility, we could say that it goes some way to helping us to understand why she was so distrusted on that, as that, on that stand and why her account simply wasn't accepted or believed. What about the idea that the jury is not supposed to read the media or see the media? I know the pre pre-trial coverage would have had an impact do we just kind of agree that it's not really possible for them to be totally isolated from everything well yeah it's very very difficult to um impanel a, a, an impartial jury because mm. particularly now because we've got so many different types of media not least the internet where you can mm. access this information so so quickly and so it just comes down to a question of, you know, when the jury is given instructions to um, not take on board any of that information, do they? Um, or can they? Yeah. Or can they? As, as human beings, we, you know, we have prejudices and we have stereotypes. And I think that that's one of the really important, thing, important things about our work is that I think this book hopefully really brings to the fore people's awareness that those stereotypes and prejudices exist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Chris, do you have an example from the book that you think particularly highlights the way it works and what it's aiming to do? In chapter 10, we look at Oscar Pistorius, the, um, mm. uh, uh, up until, well, world famous up until 2013 as an as an athlete and and since then more infamous um he shot and killed his girlfriend reva steenkamp they were staying together at his house and he had a fairly large bedroom where they were they slept in that bedroom and then down a passage a bathroom with a toilet and a toilet with a closed door um reva was shot behind the closed door of the toilet um Pistorius always said that he thought that he had an intruder in the bathroom and in the toilet and that uh, the shooting of Reva, who died from this, um, was a mistake. And he kept that story from the first time he talked to the police through his magistrate's court hearing uh, to the trial to which he was subsequently taken. Now, uh, we talk about this a little bit more in, in, in the book. There isn't time to go into it here. But quite a few people who heard his story about what he did immediately prior to the shooting, those, the, those things just don't seem to make sense. They don't rhyme with what we would say was common sense about how people act if they think that somebody got into their house and if they've got somebody in the bedroom whose safety they are concerned about. Even the judge presiding at the trial 
made that comment that there were things that just didn't make sense. Yeah. So um, the the court uh, didn't think that it was a mistake that he shot through the toilet door at all, although the, the court was clearly very uh, intrigued by some of these things that just didn't seem to square with common sense. Why didn't he make uh, more attempts to check where his girlfriend Reva was at the time and so on and so forth? The, the prosecution argued that he had intentionally killed Reva. The court said no. Uh, we'll believe that, uh, that Pistorius thought that Reva was still back in the bedroom. Um, so we don't think he intentionally shot Reva. Uh, but it wasn't a mistaken shooting. And then the question became, uh, he's in front of a closed toilet door. Um, was it reasonable to shoot through that door? He shot four high-powered bullets. Um, mm. Three of them hit Reva, killed her almost instantly. There were fatal injuries. Was it reasonable to do it supposedly acting in what he said was self-defense at one point he also said the gun went off accidentally he was unclear about exactly what happened when the gun went off and so then the whole debate uh, came down to what would a reasonable person do in those circumstances and the question is who is the reasonable person here yeah is it um a, a man without a disability? Is it a man with a disability? Is it a man in an upper middle income house in crime ridden South Africa? Or is it a man anywhere around the world? What if it was a woman, etc, etc. Mm. And um, what we the the, the, the initial court uh, and hearing came down to a decision that he knew that he might kill whoever was behind the door. Um, and so declared him guilty of culpable homicide. The prosecution appealed this, and the appeals court thought that he actually knew that he was killing someone and therefore convicted him of a, a more serious charge of um, murder. Mm. Now, what we do in, in, in that chapter is show how notions of common sense and the reasonable person are very, very frequently used to judge what happens in a case. The law doesn't say what common sense should be. It says a little bit about the reasonable person. But um, a number of researchers have raised, and particularly feminist researchers actually, have raised some really, really important questions about how do we define a reasonable person? Yeah. And of course, the definition of that reasonable person impacts on the case outcome. So um, we use the Pistorius case, again, not the only explanation about uh, uh, for why he would have been convicted, but just to show how uh, his conviction and then reconviction depended upon particular interpretations drawn either regarding the reasonable person and also around what, what common sense is and their role in the way in which we think about these things. So people's idea of common sense leads them to doubt what he's saying and to doubt that it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. See, it's absolutely fascinating. I think I'm probably one of those people who went, surely, surely he would yeah. have known, surely he couldn't have shot through then. But mm -hmm. yeah, what? where does my common sense come from? It comes from who I am. I'm mm -hmm. white middle-class woman living in the UK. Not like you say, not a person with disabilities living in South Africa and mm -hmm. a very different life to mine. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting to think because you question yourself a bit as well, don't you? And where your own judgments come from. I think we'll come on to that a bit yes. later. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you use each different case to show a particular process, um, but in reality, a single explanation, we've touched on this, is unlikely to be sufficient. So is it fair to say that there's always a combination of processes at play in all of these convictions? It is fair to say. Um, we talked a little bit about Amanda Knox and um, we wrote that chapter by looking at the media framing of her. Um, but actually, she made a, a confession which was slightly unusual in that she didn't implicate herself, but she implicated another person. And I think what's important to say about that is we, if we go back to the, if we look at the case of Brendan Dassey, who we also cover in the book, yeah. and the alleged false confession there, what um, the research tells us is once that confession is released in, in the air, um, it becomes extremely problematic for the suspect. You can't take it back. And confessions are something that it's very difficult to accept that somebody could do that when it's not true because it, it just goes against your self-interest. But we know from the psychological research that false confessions can and do happen. But there's such um, potent evidence according to the research that it's got the ability to influence the interpretation of the other evidence so if you see a confession and you're an investigator you absolutely believe that confession to be true then it follows that every other piece of evidence that you come across will fit within the context of that confession that you believe to be true yeah so Amanda's confession had the hallmarks of a false one in that she became very overtired. She was questioned through the night. She was um, very confused. She was um, talking to 12 different police officers in a language in which she was unfamiliar. But um, despite all of that, the jurors still remain likely to accept that confession as, as evidence of guilt. Mm. Um, so we could say, yeah, absolutely, there are other processes at play, and that is likely, for sure, to have contributed to her original conviction, as well as the media framing. And then, of course, if we look at the case of Brendan Dassey, that's where we do draw primarily on the research about false confessions to help understand his conviction. But equally, we could look to his low social status and lack of credibility, like I was talking about in the case yeah. of Rose West. And um, the same goes for OJ Simpson. We look at the reasons for his acquittal or why he was acquitted by looking at the persuasion skills of his defence team, but in comparison to the lack of persuasion skills, if you like, of the prosecution. But again, we could look at um, his acquittal in the context of his elevated social status and his credibility as well. So, yeah, there are a combination of processes at play. Yeah, it's very complex, isn't it? But mm. I do like the way in the book you've kind of separated them out because it really allows us to yeah. understand each process very well. And we do say at the end of each chapter um, you know, we acknowledge that it's not the only process yeah. at play and we, we name what some of the others could be. 
So taken together, these case studies illustrate that guilty or not guilty verdicts can't be objective decisions, but um, they're arrived at because of all these particular process we've talked about. Towards the end of the book, you bring in some counterfactuals that explain this really well. It was the moment where I went, oh, yeah, OK, I get it now. So could you brief- briefly give us a couple of these to illustrate the point? They're really clever. Yeah, they're very clever, aren't they? And yeah. It really does... Um really highlights the essence of really what we're trying to get to yeah um so I'll talk about the um, acquittal of Michael Jackson in 2005 for child molestation um charges so the alleged victim was um a 13 year old child called Gavin Arviso and he came from a disadvantaged background whose parents' reputations were really marked by dishonesty and deceit. And the defence for Michael Jackson really, really brought that out in the trial, this history of dishonesty. So what we do in that one, as you know, is we draw on the work of a sociologist called Donald Black um, to look at what's, what's referred to as the social geometry of the case. So That means that um, where a defendant is placed in terms of things like their social and their cultural status matters in relation to where the alleged victim sits in in this place. So with Michael Jackson and Gavin Arviso, the social geometry is such that we've got Michael Jackson right up here on the top, um, the highest you can possibly get in terms of elevated social and cultural status. And Gavin Arviso and his family who really sits, you know, at the, at the bottom. So the theory is, is that for somebody like Michael Jackson, who sat right at the top of that social status scale, is likely to receive what Donald Black calls or refers to as less law or less punishment when the accuser sits in, you know, it is so, um, so the opposite. Yeah. So one counterfactual to that is to ask the question, what would have happened or what might have happened if Michael Jackson's alleged victims belonged to other celebrity families? And we can give the example of what would have happened if it had been Macaulay Culkin who had brought the claim against Michael Jackson. And of course, if you you read the book, you'll see that um, Macaulay Culkin was one of the children that used to um, stay with Michael Jackson for periods of time without his parents. Um, And and Macaulay Culkin also um, uh, was a witness for Michael Jackson in that trial and said that nothing happened. So it's a useful, very useful counterfactual argument. Mm, Yeah. Chris, were there any you wanted to highlight there? Um, Yes. Uh, So in Chapter 9, we look at the case of Peter Sutcliffe, um, also known in the press as the Yorkshire Ripper, who, as we would see, he claimed that he heard heard voices telling him to to commit the murders for which he was convicted. The prosecution initially accepted this claim, and when Sutcliffe got to the a first uh, hearing in in Crown Court and asked how he would plead, he said that he would plead uh, guilty to manslaughter based on diminished responsibility. In other words, hearing voices is indicative of serious mental health problems and would give grounds for a conviction for 
manslaughter rather than murder. But the trial judge thought that the case for diminished responsibility needed to be put to the test before a jury. He wasn't having that. Mm. So he didn't accept that plea. And he said uh, the prosecution uh, now has to show, well, the defence now has to show why Sutcliffe had diminished responsibility. And the prosecution, instead of agreeing to that, have to disprove it. And it was perhaps partly because Sutcliffe only mentioned those voices several weeks after he'd been arrested by the police and after several interviews. So one of the things that maybe was going through the judge's mind was why did he take so long to talk about this? Mm. And then a prison officer testified that in a visit to Sutcliffe by his wife, Sutcliffe had said to his wife, don't worry if I can persuade them um, that I'm mentally ill, mm. I'll be sent to what he called the loony bin a um, mental health institution rather than prison, which was, if it was true, let's put it like that, was evidence of an attempt to cynically manipulate um, judicial opinion uh, to get a favourable outcome. And so thinking about consistency and credibility in testimony, testimony, we could ask as a counterfactual, what would have happened if immediately on arrest in the first interview, Sutcliffe had talked about voices telling him to kill women and had continued to say that throughout the rest of the interviews and if questioned in court. Might the judge have accepted his plea, uh, Mm. pleas of guilty to manslaughter? Uh, We don't know. But it is also interesting to note that although he was convicted of murder and sent to prison, within two years, the prison health staff had diagnosed a serious mental illness and he was um, subsequently transferred to Broadmoor and um, uh, given uh, a fairly lengthy course of treatment for mental health problems. Mm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? So consistency is a factor, but expecting consistency from someone with mental health issues is difficult again, isn't it? Mm, It's a good point. Mm. Yes. And the psychiatrist for the defence argued that he had something called encapsulated paranoid schizophrenia, which meant that he wouldn't be open about it to just anybody. That that condition needs time to come out. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very complicated. So just as we get towards the end, I wanted to kind of just talk a little bit more about... um, your work and with an understanding that change is unlikely to happen quickly, in what ways could the law change its practice for the better based on your analysis? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, If the truth is made rather than found, then there's always the potential for the processes of constructing guilt and innocence and for individual case outcomes to change as well. And um, as we say in the introduction to the book, we're not trying to uh, say that the, the, the criminal justice process and the adjudicatory process for deciding on guilt and innocence should simply be taken as uh, uh, something that should be dispensed with because there is no ultimate truth. There are better and worse ways of reaching a decision on guilt okay. or on yeah. innocence. And if you go, when you go through the different chapters, you can see examples of researchers criticizing some current practices and sometimes proposing changes. Uh, 
So in chapter three, when we look at Dr. Crippen, we review research on the, the perception and, and, and impact of inconsistent testimony on judgments about the credibility uh, of a, a defendant or, or a witness. And the research that's been done suggests that inconsistencies don't necessarily mean that somebody is lying. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, some of the researchers are quite critical about this notion in the courtroom, the courtroom theory of um, credibility, if you like. And uh, that's also analyzed in great depth in chapter four, Rose West. Many of the behavioral cues to credibility, does the person raise their voice? Uh, do they look away? Does the tone of their voice ra uh, get raised and so on and so forth? Um, these are believed to indicate lack of credibility, but psychologists have generally found that they don't uh, indicate that. And in fact, that justice functionaries are generally no better than the general public at distinguishing between people who tell what they think is the truth or people who knowingly tell a lie. Right, and um, in chapter 10, uh, with Oscar Pistorius again, um, I talked about the critiques of the way in which the reasonable person is operationalized. And um, there's a proposal that, uh, jury should switch the actors in a, in a criminal incident and then see if they would make the same decision. What if it had been Reva with the gun and Oscar Pistorius behind the door? Yeah. Would the uh, outcome have been the same? Or what if it had been somebody who'd come from the street up a ladder and into the bathroom with the intent to commit a robbery or burglary? Would the outcome have been the same again? Mm -hmm. So there are proposals to do these things. Um, sometimes I think they make their way into law um, uh, and into policy and guidelines. So the emphasis on confessions is beginning to, uh, uh, and admissions to crime is, is um, beginning to lose its significance, particularly in England and Wales. It's seen as one more piece of evidence which has to fit in with everything else. Its status as what was often called the queen of proofs is now uh, not as important as it was. And you can see that in models for police interviewing in, the, in, in England and Wales and in things that the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in 1984, a long time ago, began to kick in as, uh, as we've moved forward. And researchers have had some impact on, on those changes as well. Uh, but also there would be the possibility of taking experts to a trial if uh, there are concerns about um, what a reasonable person is or what a false confession is. It would be entirely possible for one side or the other to take in experts to say, here's how confessions, for example, can be falsely made. Here's the evidence for that. And then they get cross-examined or... Um, the reasonable person needs to be defined in this particular way and yes. they'll make a proposal on that. So I don't think um, it, well, hopefully if uh, some practitioners and policymakers read the text, uh, they would uh, take up some of these things and explore them further. I think it's more that the researchers and the research that we're summarizing uh, hopefully is having an impact on practices in uh, the criminal justice process. So I have one final question, um, which takes it out of the courtroom a little bit. 
You end the book with a reminder that at some point or other, each of us has had to construct our own guilt or innocence or judge the guilt or innocence of others. So on a more personal, individual level, what would you like people to take away from the book? Well, um, I think it goes back to just hoping that readers of the book will look at trials in a different perspective in the way that we've tried to put it across um, in the text and to become more aware of those processes and strategies at play. Um, and it's a different way of thinking about guilt and innocence. And the truth, um, yeah. And the truth, yeah, and becoming more aware of how our subjective perspectives form. Um, and if we think about it, who we are predominantly teaching this material to, which is our students who are most likely, the majority of them at least, will become future practitioners. And again, it's just really bringing into their conscious awareness of um, those subjective views mm. about people and about defendants. Um, but yeah, we do. We 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 do it every day in life. We construct our own guilt and innocence, whatever it might be about, mm. and we make judgments about the guilt and innocence of others. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a crime. No, Chris, is there anything you'd like to finish off with? Um, actually, I think Caro's expressed that very well. Um, I just hope they take away uh, this vision of of um of trials um as complicated sets of processes um which are not easy to get at uh, if you just rely on what you read in the media but that's generally for most people the only way that they can look at those cases so perhaps i would say it's um an attempt to also make the readers very, very well aware of how um, what actually happens in a case uh, is often hidden. As I was saying before, you have to wait for the, the information, the documents and that kind of thing. You have to be there in the courtroom. And uh, how what we read in media reports, and I'm not criticizing media reports, that of their nature, they they have to create an audience and uh, some do it more responsibly, some less responsibly. But um, I think um, particularly these days in a lot of university teaching, we are concerned to insist that the academic view of things is very different to what you will see expressed in most media outlets. Mm. Yes, that's a fair point to finish on. Thank you very much, Karen and Chris, for speaking to me. No, thank you for having us. Yes, yeah. thank you. No, Hope you found it interesting. Definitely found it interesting. I think it just it feels like it just opens up the way we think about guilt and innocence and gives us lots of different avenues to explore around that. Um, so the book is called Case Studies of Famous Trials and the Construction of Guilt and Innocence. It's by Caroline Gordon and Christopher Birkbeck, published by Bristol University Press. And you can find more information on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.